The following conversation contains strong language and subjects of a mature nature. Hello and welcome to Meet the Stars, the podcast where each week I, Luke Anthony, delve deeper into the career, life and mental health of the stars. This week I'm joined by a rising star, Ola Labib. She is known for her infectious charm, edgy comedy material and wry humour. She's the only black Muslim female Sudanese comedian currently performing in the UK. She's already gained serious ground on the circuit and has no intention of slowing down. If you'd like to get in touch with us, follow us on social media or find out more about this week's guest. All of that information is in the description. But for now, this is Ola Labib. Ola, welcome to Meet the Stars podcast. Thank you for having me. So I just so really, rather than talking about how you started in comedy, yeah. the question I'd like to ask is how difficult you found it to decide to do comedy, given the way that your family and other friends in your students' community might have reacted. It gets to a certain part of your life when you're really not happy doing what you're doing and knowing that you'd be happier doing something else, that the benefits starts to outweigh the risks. And I think at that point in my life, I thought the benefits of doing it will outweigh the risks of the clapback that I could potentially get. I did risk it and I did it. And whatever clapback there is, it's I'm dealing with it, but I would rather have lived than not lived at all. There's something like, you, you don't regret the choices you make, you regret the things you didn't do. Yes, or something, like that. something along those lines, yeah. yeah. I had been putting it off for so long, but for me, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to take the risk and just do it and deal with the consequences as they come. Are you still balancing the two jobs then? Are you still are you still working as a pharmacist as well as trying to do the comedy too? I literally walked in from a pharmacy shift three oh, minutes wow. before I started the call. And I'm sure you've been asked this before, but has that been really difficult? Especially when it first kicked off, you know, the thing that's happening in the world at the moment. Was it really difficult with... Can I just, can I just imagine it must have been awful? So a lot of people think it's the time aspect of it. And don't get me wrong, the time aspect is really, really tough. Doing like a 10-hour shift and then driving like an hour and a half for like a five-minute open mic spot and then coming back at like one o'clock in the morning. And the time aspect of it was tough, but you could deal with it. The part that I've always said I really, really struggled with is when I've had like a really emotionally draining day. The one example I always go back to is I had my first paid gig in Yorkshire in a place called Harrogate, I think it was. And it was by a really good, like a really fantastic promoter in the Northwest. I had a shift and that one, I was working at Wigan Hospital at the time. And literally in the last hour, three of my patients died. Oh, bloody hell. It was one of the hardest, hardest things because one of the patients was like a 32-year-old lady with metastatic cancer. And because she was on the ward for so long, like I built such a good relationship with her. Unfortunately, on the day of the gig, she died and I was in absolute ruins. Like I was in such a horrible, horrible place. Literally finished the shift and drove to Harrogate, which was like an hour and a half away from where I was working. So I was literally like bawling my eyes out the whole way there. Wiped away the tears, went into the venue, had like a catch up. Oh, this is what you got to do. This is what you got to do. Is it okay if we put you second? And obviously, I'm, you know, it's my first paid opportunity for this promoter. I'm not going to be like, no, I'm not in a good place. I was just like, okay, yeah, that's fine. And to get on stage for 10 minutes and make people laugh, after having gone through that day was probably one of the hardest, hardest, hardest things that I've ever done. When it comes to balancing work, it's not so much the time aspect, it's the emotional side of it, of having just to be so physically and emotionally drained and then go and perform and make people laugh. I like to think when I do comedy on myself, and I am myself, don't get me wrong, but there's an aspect of acting after you've had a really shit day. And for me, I think that was the most difficult part. 
or is the most difficult part? It's always those things in life that, that make it the most difficult. Like one of the things that used to bother me is when my partner would remind me like literally two minutes before I'm about to go on set and remind me that I need to buy loads of things and just remind me of all the <laughs> all of the earthy things that happen in our lives. Because it's those family aspects and, and sort of marital relationship obligations that, that also can, and they don't drag you down, but they, they just, they bring you back down to earth just as you're about to go on to stage when actually you don't want to be stressed about the things that are happening elsewhere you need to be in the zone yeah 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 and usually like you can get in the zone say for example that happened yeah the day before then at least I've got a day to compose myself or whatever but to have no time to compose yourself literally going from one to the other straight away it's harder to kind of get in the zone so you kind of have to force yourself to get in the zone and yeah it's not the easiest at all but I think that aspect of it is literally probably the hardest thing that I had to kind of deal with more than anything are you doing a Rubik's cube am I doing a Rubik's cube yeah I can hear a lot of muffling on there like moving on the mic oh sorry my bad are you, are you like some Rubik's Cube champion? Are you just, you're just practicing for like the world champion? I think it's going on at the moment. I'm no, sure. no, I'm just like, I'm just shuffling. Sorry, I'll stop moving. <laughs> it's fine. It's not a problem. So obviously, you know, so, so the time aspect of work is not a massive, a massive issue. It's more the emotional side of it. How about with that sort of relationship and family when you're working, then you go off straight to a gig and then you need to sort of try and find a little bit of time, family time to that quality time as well that keeps keeps people in your family happy. How hard is that to deal with? At the moment, so I got married eight months ago. I guess at the beginning it was difficult, but my husband actually doesn't even live in the country right now. He's in America. Oh, right. So I've got a lot more free time. And yeah, it was hard to balance, but then I made the decision to move down the road from my parents. So even if I go over, they're literally like a 30 second walk. I can pop my head in. Things that were a struggle before, I've done everything that I could to kind of overcome it my parents weren't the happiest. My dad kind of accepted it. He was just like, look, at the end of the day, you've got your degree, you've got a good job. <laughs> this is like comedy's not even a job, like in their eyes. <laughs> he was like, so if this is what you enjoy, as long as you don't make an idiot of yourself and like degrade where you come from or degrade your culture, your religion, then that's fine. But he was like, I don't want to hear on the grapevine that, you know, you've made like a jokingly Islamophobic comment or made a, do you know what I mean? So he was like, as long as you're uplifting your people, he was like, yeah, do it. And don't do anything that if I hear it, I'll be like, I can't believe you did that. And I was like, oh shit, I better, I better start taking everything off the internet then. <laughs> as weird as it sounds, he doesn't. Re he never mentioned it. The only reason he mentioned it is because my mum mentioned it. My mum's not happy with it at all. You, you know, we didn't kind of speak for a long time. And then eventually she brought it up and she kind of was like, if you stop what you're doing, we can go back to normal. And I was just like, look, mum, that's not going to happen. I've haven't been happy in my job for years and years and years. I've wanted to do this for years. But the reason like I kind of put it off is because I was worried that it would affect my family relationship or, you know, what people thought of me in the community. But in actual fact, I, okay, I care what my parents think, but community wise, I couldn't give two shiny shits what they think because their opinion's not going to affect my life. For them, oh, wow, Ola's a pharmacist. Oh, she's got a master's degree. Oh, she's gone into clinical. Oh, she's specialised. Okay, so what? Like, how's that going to affect my life? What they think? Like, if I turned around and became a lap dancer and they were like, oh, my God, did you hear Ola became a lap dancer? How's what they think going to affect me in this? It doesn't affect me. If me being miserable and them being impressed is how I, a lot of us live our lives. And a lot of us do live our lives. That's why we're so fucking miserable. So I think I came to the realization that as long as I'm happy, as long as I'm okay with what I'm doing and I'm succeeding in what I'm doing, we come from, it's really hard to explain, like we come from a kind of community that you care what other people think of you more than what you care, like what you think of yourself. It's very much a, oh my God, what will they say? What would the community say? And like, it used to bother me, but I think it's got to the point where I, I don't give a flying fuck. In conclusion. 
Yeah, <laughs> love. In conclusion, there you go. Yeah, it's true though. I, I don't think. I, I mean, obviously that that's a very sort of known cultural thing in in Sudanese um, cultures and, and things like that. It's very very well known. That, but I do think like our generation. You know, I think you're a similar age to myself, and we're all told that this this is the the way to conform. This is what you do. You know, you you leave school, you go to uni, you meet someone, you have children. You do everything in order, like in the same way that your parents did. You settle down and that's it for 50 years. But I think for once, our generation are a little bit more brave in that sense. I know we had like the 50s and, and things like that. We had the teenage teddy boy movement and stuff like that. But I think now people are just like, no, this is what I'm going to do. And there's nothing really anyone can say. But I, I imagine it's a little bit more serious in your culture and a little bit more fatal if you do go completely against the norm. You can look at it in two three ways for me I could say like I'm doing what I want and to be honest I could have done what I want whenever I wanted like no one's got a gun to my head but at the end of the day like our parents did sacrifice everything for us they really did like they left their families their homes to come here to give us a better life and for that reason, like, I'm forever grateful. My mum and dad have worked hard their whole lives. So my parents are from Sudan, but they come from a small village in Sudan. And my mum came here when she was only 20 years old, not knowing anything. Like, imagine coming from a village where there's not even... Elect- when she had left, there wasn't even electricity in the village. And she'd only been to the capital city once, and that was to get on the aeroplane to come to the UK. So for her to give up everything and come to such a strange and different world completely. And she went to work straight away. She started working and she worked in a factory and from living like a beautiful, peaceful life to coming here only because you want your kids to have a better life. I like I forever will be grateful for that. And I think that's why I put it on hold for so long, because the overwhelming feeling of guilt I feel guilty like I don't want to make them unhappy because they've done so much for me and I'd like to think that I've done everything that they'd wanted to make them happy like I did the degree that they were happy with I went to the uni they wanted me to go to I did all the postgrads they wanted me to do I saved the money that they wanted me to save By the time I was 28, I've done everything that they would have wanted me to do. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to think about doing it. And even like I moved to Manchester for the open mic circuit. But even though I was already there, it took me two years to finally do it. And I kept it on the low. Like my parents didn't know about it. I've been going for a year and a half and they only found out maybe five weeks ago. So my intention was, to be honest, not to tell them. And if I ever made it on TV for them to switch it on and be like, what the fuck? I'd be like, oh, yeah. So basically, I forgot to mention something. But I was hoping that when they found out, they would find out in a way that will be like, wow, my daughter's on TV and be like, oh, that's actually really cool. Rather than finding out by finding a YouTube video of someone randomly recording me in a grubby pub in Manchester so literally all they saw was a bar next to me a load of drunk looking majority white men all like laughing going like I I understand why they felt the way they did I tried to make my dad understand it's like that's not what I'm going to be doing forever but I have to start somewhere yeah so it's not like oh I'm rebelling or I'm doing it because I want to do it I'll do whatever I want no actually I've lived my whole life and I do to a certain extent live my whole life because I want to make my parents happy first but I can make them happy doing what I'm doing I just have to show them how do you get what I mean yeah, for sure. Well, it's a huge, a huge burden you, you put on yourself there to make them happy. I know your your husband, Ramsey, is an American rapper himself. So when you thought about doing comedy, was that a decision you made alongside him and he encouraged you to do it? Or was that a decision you made solely on your own? So I've always wanted to do it regardless. But yeah, my husband, Rami, he definitely gave me that push. He's very, very, very supportive. I didn't want, you know, like my family thinking that it came from him. No, I've always wanted to do it. 
I'm blessed in the sense that he pushed me in the right direction and I finally took that step. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was really supportive and I kind of needed that. My brothers are really supportive as well, my older brothers. They're like, they're really, really cool. And my older brother, when I told him, oh, mum's upset, he was like, you idiot. You should have told her, mum, I'm a stripper first. <laughs> and then she would have gone ape shit and hated you and then gone back and been like, you know what, mum, I've left stripping. I'm now a comedian. And he went, and it wouldn't have had such a massive impact. <laughs> I was like, yeah. No, it would have been a bit awkward. It still would have been awkward. And it's the sort of gig you wouldn't want your parents to turn up to either. Oh, my days. What, what, why are you putting these images in my head right now? <laughs> uh, imagine that. Imagine that. One of the things I noticed was that you kept your name for professional purposes. Was that a conscious decision? As in your stage name, Ola Labib, is different to what your husband's name is. In Islam, a woman doesn't change her name. I see. Historically, women or slaves used to change their names to their slave owner's name because then that person becomes their property. So I'm not my husband's property. I'm my own person. So Islamically, women don't change their names because we see it as a form of oppression, like you belong to that person. That's why I don't change my name. So it's nothing, it's not, it's not to do a stage name. It's because my husband doesn't own me. Okay. I'll bear that in mind when I get married. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like at the end, it, do you know what it is? Things become a norm, but people don't know where it stemmed or rooted from. Yeah, that's true. So this is something that's been happening for generations, generations, generations. But as long as I remember and like from our history and stuff like that, even from like the Nubian times, the, the Kushti times, it was a very ancient civilization. What, one of the most ancient civilizations, that's always been the case that we do not change our name. Funnily enough, even when like now you have a kid, they take the father's last name, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. In our culture, but it's obviously changed because of colonization and this and that and this and that. But in actual fact, even in some tribes that are still like ancient tribes, like my husband's tribe, they don't take the father's name. They actually take the mother's name. Ah, that's interesting. Yes, yeah, interesting. My partner's from Uganda. I've been over to Uganda. Beautiful, beautiful country. We did our traditional wedding, which is not like an official wedding, but it's, it's a traditional wedding. You do the whole dowry and all yeah, of those Yeah, yeah, we call it the act. Yeah, it's very similar. So the Ugandan is very similar to ours. So yeah, go on. You, you border South Sudan, which borders Uganda, don't That's you? That's right. So, and there's a lot of tribes that are in Uganda that are in South Sudan as well. Ah, yeah. So so I'm I'm part of the Cal. Huh? I'm a Cal clan, um, which means, I think it's called... Enti clan, which means a cow. So, but it's the one. It's the one clan. You can eat the meat of of the clan. The other ones you're not allowed to eat the meat. But that's only because it's beef, which did, did make me laugh that they that's the one they chose that you're allowed to eat. Wait, so your wife is Ugandan and she lives in the UK. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's actually so cool. And you go quite often, or is was it just a one off? We've been a couple of times. We went there the first time to do the, they call it the introduction, which is like the pre-introduction. So then you do, oh, what's it called? There's a name for it. Um, you go in, you meet the family, you you ask, basically ask for the hand in marriage. And then we went the following year to do the traditional wedding, which again is not technically a wedding, but it's the, the main bit, the most important bit where you had 500 odd guests. I didn't know any of them and quite an incredible day. That's so cool. So yes, it's all good. It's all good. So she's from she's from Uganda, and you, you spoke there about taking the names. Um, in in her culture, the dad passes on his surname, but then gives the child another name, which is their technically their surname. So for us, yes. Yeah, so I take my dad's first name as my middle name, and the my dad's family name as my surname. So my dad's name is Adil Labib, and my name is Ola Adil Labib. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting. I find it fascinating. And, and usually when they write the names down, they write the surname first and then the first name second. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I've, n I've never heard that one. What are the most common and annoying questions that people ask you about your heritage and your religion? Okay, so I'm actually doing a lot of work on this at the moment. So most commonly when I tell people I'm from Africa, they're like, oh, so you're Indian. And I'm like, 
no, I'm black. And the concept of me being black, they just don't grasp it. They don't grasp that Africa is such an array of cultures, colours, hair types, languages. Like in Uganda alone, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's over like over 100 different languages. In Sudan, there's over 150 to 200 languages. Like me and my husband don't speak the same language, even though we're from Sudan. The most common language in North Sudan is Arabic, but only because of like, you know, them coming over and fucking whatever. Even our old languages, I have words that my husband won't understand. And he has a whole language that I completely don't understand. The biggest misconception is people don't acknowledge that I'm black just because of my skin tone, which majorly pisses me off. Believe it or not, people find it difficult to grasp the concept of how can you be a black African and a Muslim? Like, how, how is that possible? Not knowing that Islam is a religion and being a black African is an ethnicity. They're two different things. And I think it's because in the UK, generally, when you say Muslim, you think Asian, you think Pakistani, Bengali, Indian. This is generally what you think. So that's a massive misconception that I get. And thirdly, I think the biggest misconception I get is because I wear a hijab, they automatically think that I'm some oppressed, going to get cut off from the family for doing what I'm doing. And because I'm married, it must have been arranged. Um, you know what? As a point, the next person to ask me if I had an arranged marriage, I'm going to absolutely <laughs> spark them out. Because I feel like talking to people is not really sinking in. So maybe if I punch them in the face first, then I've got a better <laughs> chance of them fearing me and actually listening to what I'm saying. So thank you, Luke. You've <laughs> literally just motivated me to punch in the face the next person who asks me, oh, was it an arranged marriage? Did you kind of meet him on the day? I wonder, do, do I look and sound like someone that will just rock up to a venue on the day of the wedding, not knowing what he looks like, what he does, what he sounds like, what he smells like? How does that make any sense to you? Like, anyways, <laughs> enough of that. But yeah, they're the biggest misconceptions and they're all just as annoying as each other. I just need to, just for the podcast and the listener there, I just need to confirm that I do not advocate Ola punching people. And I'd also like to say that I don't openly encourage punching people, but I can certainly empathise with her anger on people's misconceptions. The thing is, like... There's a lot of people around now and there's something called, I don't know if you've heard of it, the fucking internet. So at some point, like educate yourselves. You've got plenty of time during lockdown to sit and masturbate for four hours nonstop. Why don't you take 15 minutes of that time and just look up East African culture, Islam, the hijab. Why do girls wear hijab? There are that you can do that. We live in a multicultural environment. People like I've worked with other people who obviously wear hijab or whatever, but they don't talk to anyone, which is fine. If you want to be antisocial, good. But if I worked like, for example, I worked with a Jehovah's Witness before. I hear the staff talking about them like, you know, because you know what? Some people are absolute dicks. And they will openly, like, they will whisper among each other, be like, oh, yeah, I hope he doesn't come knocking on my door on the weekend. <laughs> Which is so fucking disrespectful and disgusting. And I'm just like, I wouldn't knock on your door because I've seen your oral hygiene. So I can only imagine what your house is like. So I don't think anyone's going to come knocking on your door, sweetheart. But I would then Google Jehovah's Witness. And I did some reading about it and, like, you know, just saw what, the difference between their belief and normal Christian beliefs. And you know what? I have learned so much because I obviously asked him about it. I was like, oh, so for example, the thing that really interested me was the whole concept of like blood transfusions. I was actually really interested as to why, like, I'm not going to bore you with the details or whatever, even though I personally thought it was re really interesting, but it was in the Old Testament, it talks about the consumption of blood. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I was like, the Quran says that as well. We're not allowed to consume blood. But when it says consume, it means like orally, like we can't eat it or yeah. drink it. Yeah. But it's interesting how they interpret it as in blood can't enter them in any way, whether it's orally, whether it's IV. So that's why it's not allowed. So that literally took me like, what, 
five minutes to be like, oh, what what makes them different from other Christians, blah, blah, blah. I don't understand why other people don't do it. Okay, if you live in, I don't know, like a village in the middle of nowhere where you're not surrounded by anyone and you don't work with anyone, you've got no reason to. But if you're integrating and dealing with these people day in, day out, if you're a doctor, a nurse, work in the media, I, I personally believe you should have like a level of understanding of who you're working with. Like, you don't want to work with a Muslim and be like, go on, try a bit of my bacon batty. You want to be able to know what they can and can't do. And even if you don't want to look it up, just ask. I don't mind someone asking me, but I don't like people telling me. So if someone said to me, oh, so, oh, you're married. How did you meet him? If I then turned around and said, oh, it was an arranged marriage, at least that's me telling you. But 100% of the time they're like, oh, so it was an arranged marriage, was it? So they've already got the assumption that it was arranged. Do you get what I mean? Yeah, totally. Do you think that's because of the way these things are portrayed in the media and on TV? 110 bazillion percent. It's sad that someone has decided, I mean, I was going to bring on bring on to this, but these premeditated perceptions of what people have to be and this labelling and, and stereotyping and categorising of people, I, I guess it stems from marketing and having to target people in a certain way to ensure that. But the media and, and lots of TV channels and things like that speak often, often about having to break stereotypes and break stigmas, but they're a part of the problem. Oh, of course they're part of the problem. Like, of course they're part of the problem. You know, it's happening even today. Like, if a white guy runs a load of people over, they'll be like, whatever blogs he ran over, 50 people killing them. But if someone called Hussein ran over, Muslim Pakistani Hussein runs over, blah, blah, blah. So automatically you're associating acts like that with his race and with his religion. So of course, like, I don't even need to preach about this because this is something that obviously happens. And unfortunately, like, even on TV, it's the same thing, like EastEnders, they had a Muslim family. And what a coincidence, their name are the Masoods. They're Asian. Yeah your typical Bengali, Pakistani, Indian, whatever. So automatically, that's what people are going to think. People don't know that there's actually, you're, you're an African Muslim. Oh, I didn't know you existed. Well, of course you don't know you exist. I don't think I've ever seen a fucking black Muslim on TV ever. Have you? Have you ever come across a black Muslim on TV before? Like when you see a Muslim on TV, what do they look like? Generally, they're always portrayed as, as somebody who's Asian or, or Arabic. Yes, exactly. So that just completely shuts us off, number one. And number two, people don't even know that we exist, pretty much. Interestingly, I went to a young actor's drama school with um, Himesh Patel, who is who plays Tamwa um, Masood in EastEnders. Oh, I know Tamwa. <laughs> We're not personally, but like I know his character. Oh, yeah. If you say... Asian teenager like that's what comes into your head so yeah I think the media 100% oh he was absolutely typecast I remember when he got the gig when we were still we must have been under 18 I think when he first got the job or just after we left the the drama school and his whole spotlight his whole profile online was all about that and that sort of positive discrimination sort of thing that to get to get certain parts but I think one of the things I like to talk about a bit is obviously your material does deal with these contentious issues head-on clearly when I saw you perform you know the online gig that we did and seeing your stuff elsewhere you deal with these contentious issues and these stereotypes that people in some places can make people feel uncomfortable but your reaction you get for it is is usually really positive and I think that's really good I think it's because they know I've always said, and each to their own, but my pet hatred, and I think that they need to go back and they reflect. I hate it when comedians of Muslim background, because it's like, you speak for yourself, but don't speak for me, play on stereotypes of people. And I remember there's there's one comedian, I hope he trips up and falls on his face, that always always degrades degrades it are so much in the sense of islam because i'm not asian so if you want to do that that's a battle for you know your community to deal with you on in regards to islam he would go on stage and he'll be like and i'm so glad he was on chortle news and i'm so glad people say that this reviewer was a horrible reviewer but i wanted to write him a letter and maybe chuck in a box of uh, chocolates for him because he was like oh 
when he saw this guy perform, it was like a tick list of stereotypes. And that's exactly what it is. So he came in, he was like, he came on stage with a rucksack and he was like, don't worry, I'm not going to blow up the place. <laughs> Twat. And then he made a stereotype about, oh, I know what you're all thinking. When I go home, I'm going to have a curry. <laughs> I am. <laughs> it's like, you're so fucking boring. Like someone boom off stage. So that annoys me, obviously. But what else annoys me is when they create new stereotypes. So one joke that he did that people laughed at and the majority of the crowd were, you know, white people. I was not impressed. I was going to have a word with him, but then I thought, you know what, that will make you relevant and you're very irrelevant. But he made a comment about, you know, these women who you call ninjas, they cover their face. It's not because they want to rob a bank and they don't want you to know who they are. It's not to do with religion. Most of these women have mustaches and they can't be bothered to get rid of their facial hair. So they cover their face. Cover it up. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, he said it in a much, I was going to say much funnier way, but it wasn't fucking funny. So no, I probably said it (laughs) than he did. But that really bothered me because you're talking to a group of people whose knowledge on us are limited anyway. So you're actually educating people negatively and creating new ideologies. So now these people subconsciously, every time they walk past a woman wearing a niqab, they're going to be like, oh, I wonder if she's got a moustache. And it's not funny. It's actually really, really not cool. The other thing about that is that in some cases, people, these middle class white audiences that are going to a comedy club, this could be the first time they've seen a Muslim openly speak about this sort of stuff. Yes. So they could have these weird um, preconceptions that they've absorbed from the media. But by someone playing up to the stereotype, that's just making it worse because they're going to go away and talk about those things and talk about that comedian who spoke about that and, and tell somebody else. And that spreads like wildfire. And I think that's quite dangerous. It does spread like wildfire. And do you know what, Luke? I believe that I'm obviously like... I'm so blessed where I am today. But I think in the open mic circuit, I think potentially I may have done better if I started playing on those whole stereotypes about myself, this and that. But I refuse to do that. And you know what? Like my parents had an issue with what I was doing, as you know, at the beginning. But when my dad listened to my interviews and listened to this and and like seen how much I've opposed You have to understand that when my parents watch TV, I know they weren't happy with it and it's different. It's not known. So they're worried about the judgment. They're worried about this and they don't they don't want that for themselves. But at the same time, you need to understand when they're watching TV and they see Muslims on TV, they're seeing stuff like goodness gracious me. They're seeing stuff like Citizen Khan. They're seeing stuff like Muslimic. So they're seeing Muslims who literally every show I've mentioned is Asian because, again, you don't get black Muslim representation on TV. Anyways, they're making like almost like a mockery of themselves. Yeah. So when I watched Citizen Khan personally, it really made me feel uncomfortable because you know you're going to get it. And you know when Goodness Gracious Me came out, do you know how many people would be like, oh, goodness gracious me? <laughs> because they automatically link me with these people. Yes, haha, it's funny. Yeah, you're going to get views. But have you sat back and thought about the impact of this show and what it will have on other people? No, they don't. Because of these shows, I've had so much shit in school as a result of them. And I feel like they don't think about that. And even though obviously it doesn't apply to me because I'm not Asian, I'm black and I'm African, because of the level of ignorance, whether it be for whatever reason, people are going to lump me in with that. And it's just like, that's not who I am. So I think like misrepresentation is the worst. And I'm really trying to pull away from that. If anything, I make a mockery of people having the stereotype rather than of the stereotype itself. Do you get what I mean? So instead of me saying... I know I'm carrying a rucksack. Don't worry, I'm not going to blow myself up, whatever. I would probably be like, I hope you're not thinking whatever because I've got a rucksack. Because if that's the case, you, sir, and there'll be like a 55, because you will get like a 40 to 45 year old 
white guy generally in a club, I'd be like, well, if I'm a terrorist, then that makes you a paedophile because the higher percentage of paedophiles in the UK are white males between the ages of 40 and 55. You assuming that I'm a terrorist is the same as me assuming that you're a fucking paedophile. I kind of play on the stereotype that if you're going to judge me, then when are you going to start judging yourselves as well? Maybe that was a bad example, but... No, that's a great example. But it's true because if, if, if you're going to base it on statistics, if supposedly he's presenting what his preconception is, is as, a, as a fact, then here's a fact for you too. Mm. And I think that's fine. The other thing there is presumably when you go on stage, the first thing people absorb is something visual from you. Yes. So do you ever feel the pressure to deal with that immediately? At the beginning... So my opening line used to be, hi, my name's Ola and I've been doing comedy for X amount of time and I've already started experiencing new things. I've never been in a pub before. (laughs) I love that. And I'm from down south. So I grew up in quite a racist place and I was like, so I'm from Hampshire. So it's a new experience being looked at by white people with positive expressions on their faces. So that was always my opening line. And then... I remember one time I was in the semi-finals of the Frog and Bucket and that's when the Shamima Begum news came up. Yeah. And I was literally reading it on my phone during the gig. I made the comment of I'm not so I'm not used to so many white people looking at me with expressions on their faces. And literally, like just there and then, I was like, you know what? I think the last time I saw so many white people looking at a girl with smiles on their faces is when they refused to let Shimima Begum back into the country. Because at that point the news were like, Yeah, we're not gonna let her back in. We don't care about this, we don't care about that, blah, blah, blah. And the reaction I got was actually mad and i got an applause and a laugh so usually you have five minutes to perform in the gong show and the tittering over that comment literally lasted like a minute i'm not even joking someone would start the laughter off again and they'd all just start laughing again and i thought shit this went well and ever since then like i would use the same opening line because it always gets people in and it makes them acknowledge that I really have no filter and I will say exactly what I'm thinking. If you've got the stereotype that I'm going to sit there on stage like a lot of these people and be like, I wear a hijab. Oh, I, I'll do it so that no one can come near me. Oh, I hide my money here. Oh, I've got Voldemort. It's like, no, bruv, I'm here to fuck you all up. And I'm allowed to do that because I'm on stage. Yeah, you've got the mic in your hand. Was that one at the Manchester Comedy Store? Frog and Bucket. Oh, Frog and Bucket. Sorry, I thought you meant the, com- the gong show at the Comedy Store. Yeah, there's, the, there's King Gong at the Comedy Store, which is savage. Yeah. And then there's the Beat the Frog. Yeah. At the Frog and Bucket. So I did Beat the Frog at the Frog and Bucket. They're so scary, those um, gong oh shows. Oh, that- <laughs> my God. Oh, my God. Do you know what? Even at where I'm at the moment, I'll still be terrified to do a gong show. Often female comedians are influenced by other female comedians that have preceded them. Mm-hmm. What is it about Dave Chappelle and Ricky Gervais that you like? I like Dave Chappelle because he educates as well as is funny. He is funny, he's smart, he's intelligent, and he doesn't care what anybody thinks. He says what he says and he doesn't give a shit about the consequences yet people still want to see him. And I love how he articulates. I love how he says stuff and it's really serious and it really relates to you. Like, you know, being black and hearing someone really acknowledge the struggle and he'll say it with his chest, yet hit you back with something really funny. I just think it's genius and I think he's hilarious. Ricky Gervais is the driest person ever and... I think it's that aspect of no filter. And he says what a lot of us are thinking, but we would never dare say it. So I can watch uh, Ricky Gervais's at the Golden Globes a million times and never, ever get bored because it's just like, oh, I love that feeling of laughing and going, oh, God, like, that's why I really like him. Yeah, I think I think he gave a couple of those reactions on that comedy night we did the other month. Oh, did I? Oh, God. I don't remember what I said. Sometimes, like, let me just clarify. Sometimes when I get off stage, 
And only once did I tell them because they put the footage online and I emailed them and I was like, please edit this out. Like, please edit this out. There are not just one time. There are multiple times I get off stage and I'm like, oh, why the fuck did I say that? Like, why did I do that? (laughs) Yeah, that does happen sometimes. And I'm working on my filter to a certain extent. It's not that it's not funny. Like, (laughs) I'm sometimes bloody hilarious. I don't think it was at this Zoom chat, but there was one time I was like, I made the Shamima joke. People went, oh, like that. Like, yeah, I know it's awkward. But I said, look at that guy on camera 17 or whatever. I was like, where's his hand? I was like, that's more awkward. The fact that he's like doing that whilst there's so many people watching or something like that. The guy like was like, oh, no, oh, oh, like he got all flustered. And I thought, oh, shit, why did I say that? What if he was doing that? And I've like literally just baited him out in a zoom call of like 60 people so sometimes I'm just like okay maybe I need to calm it a little bit nah that's a, I don't know why I'm pretending nah that's not true I'm glad I said that it was bloody hilarious yeah no def- definitely that sounds like a really good comeback so do you think you had two male influences um com- comedy influences do you think that's because of the lack of re- representation in comedy for someone like yourself For me, my dad's the funniest person in the whole wide world. Like, he is 10 million times funnier than Dave Chappelle, even though I love Dave Chappelle, but my dad's hilarious. And whenever anyone meet, like, when my agent met my dad, she was like, I see where you get it from. Our senses of humour are exactly the same. And when people say, oh, you're like your dad, I just know that I'm going to definitely make it big. He was my influence from a comedy point, like from a sense of humour point of view. But in regards to TV, yeah, there wasn't a lot of people that looked like me at all on TV. And I know this is probably generalising big time, but when people are like, oh my God, for example, Tiffany Haddish, Tiffany Haddish, and I thought, oh, another black comedian, and I'd watch her. It's very crude and very vulgar, a lot of like sex jokes, vagina jokes, you know, this, and... I don't like that type of humour whatsoever. And then obviously you naturally gravitate towards people that you can relate to. But I felt like there wasn't really anyone I could relate to. And even if there was someone who was like a black female, it was completely different outlooks and upbringings. And it's just like, I can't relate to you. I can't relate to you at all. Oh, you know, one time I went out and I got absolutely bladdered and I ended up and I'm like well I wouldn't know what that's like I can't relate to it so I don't think it's funny but if someone makes a comment about oh yeah one time this and that and um you know I had to hide I had to hide from one of the uncles or whatever like I could relate to that and I'll find it funny like yeah, yeah yeah I get that so sometimes when there's like female comedians because they're so different from my background, my upbringing, my everything. Like, I can't, I can't, I just don't. Some of them say stuff that's funny, I guess. Again, in conclusion, there's no one that really looks or looks like me, has the same upbringing as me, like even jokes about anything that I can kind of relate to. So it's just like, I don't. But I think that's really benefited your comedy though, because you are very different to everyone else out there. You know, I've, I've watched a lot of comedy. I'm mean, interesting. I'd never set foot in a, a comedy club before I started comedy. I'm um, in the same way that I did once I started. But you know, since consuming a lot of comedy and a lot of different comedians and being quite inquisitive about comedy from different backgrounds and things like that, you are a standalone thing. And often when people start comedy, they mimic their idols too much and then you can really see it in their comedy and it's not for a a good few years or a thousand or so gigs before they actually have their own voice but it seems that you always had your voice and that was always what you wanted to talk about I like to think and I whenever like my friends come and watch me and this and that I do make sure that what I'm like on stage is exactly what I'm like off stage and that's another thing that I love about people like Dave Chappelle, Ricky Gervais. I, can, I know that Dave Chappelle is probably like that in his normal day-to-day life. I know Ricky Gervais is probably like that in his normal day-to-day life. I personally don't enjoy comedians that are on stage and it's like an act and then when they're off stage they're a different persona. I like the idea that you're not a comedian, you're actually you and you're funny and you're just on stage and doing you. So I like to think that it's not an act. Like I don't, my comedy, I don't make up stuff. 
So every, everything that I talk about in my comment is, is stuff that's that I've lived through, that I've experienced, that I've read, that I've this, that I've that. Like I don't just make up stuff to make people laugh. I talk about my experiences and what it's like for me and for people to kind of relate to it and find it funny. So however I am on stage, believe it or not, that's that's me. That's not an act or whatever. That's who I am. That's a really mature development in comedy because, you know, as often when you see, you know, Ricky Gervais and Dave Chappelle always speak about being more authentic and being more honest about what they're doing. And the more they grew as comedians and, and matured as comedians, the more honest they wanted to be. And and you've seemed to have, you know, established that really young in your comedy journey, I guess, and which is really, really quite developed, I'd say. Do you know what it is? I think it's because I don't know. This is going to sound really dark, but I think I've spent coming from where I come from. I've spent so much time trying to be somebody else, trying to fit in with all the white kids when I was in primary school, in secondary school, being a teenager and all the girls going out and this and that. Like I was never allowed to do 90% of what they do but I'd always in school like I tried to fit in and be like oh yeah well I did that but I did it with my other friends or oh yeah I get what you mean like I've spent so much time and effort trying to be the person that people would expect me to be but also try to adhere to who I want to be that this is the first time that I can be myself and then like people appreciate that I'm different so before I didn't want to be different. I tr- I want to be just like everybody else. And it is actually so exhausting. So being able to be me, say what I want, as Ola Labib, as being black, as being Muslim, as being female in this day and age and where I live, I actually find it, it's literally like a breath of fresh air. Being able to say what I say without being judged, without having to think twice about what I say, without having to think about making everyone around me happy. Like, you know, like even as a pharmacist, I think I've had more racial experiences in work than out of work. And you have to kind of take it on the chin and not as much as you'd want something to be done about it. Let's be honest, fuck all is being done about it. But you kind of have to say what, what you're expected to say. So I think that applies to people in comedy as well. They say stuff that they think will make you, Luke, laugh. But I don't do that. I go on stage. I say what I say. You find it funny? Laugh. You don't find it funny? Whatever. This is my past experience. I'm talking from me. Okay, I'm going to take the compliment. Yes, I've got a skill that takes people years to do. But in actual fact... I find it easier being me than pretending to be somebody else. Because you've already spent so many years having to pretend to be somebody else. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting. It's my idea of heaven to 100% be me, preach what I believe in, tell you what your faults in your systems are, tell you what your faults in your community are, tell you what you have put me through all these years, without having to worry about any clapback. That is, I would say that is any person who's a minority's idea of heaven and I'm doing it and getting paid for it. I love it. I absolutely love it. As somebody who is a white middle-class straight guy, I, I know my privilege and all of those things, but it's often the, you know, from speaking to my partner, I know it's the, often the passive racism that she faces in the corporate world. What is something that, someone like myself and other people like me can do to make this world a slightly better place for people like you? Educate yourselves and listen. That's literally it. Educate yourselves and listen. And I think if you can do that, you will, no disrespect, but no matter how hard you try, you will never know what it's like, but you can always empathise. And I think once you've got that level of empathy and you understand why we feel like that, have that level of understanding, then that that's more than what you can do. And support. And support. That's that's all that's that's all we're asking. We're not asking for you to like carry us on your backs and this and that and whatever. But I think, yeah, as long as you educate yourself, you listen and you kind of understand, then we can't ask for anything else, I don't think. 
How important is it for people to challenge it when they see it or hear it? Oh, I think it's really important. I think it's really important. I, I love it when people ask me that question. And like I made, I used to make a joke about how like um, since I've been doing comedy, people have been asking, so why is it you wear that then? Why, why is it you wear a hijab? So I talk about how like, I was like, oh my God, no one ever used to ask me and how keen I am. And I made it really like, and I was like, well, now I'm actually really bored of the question because you don't have to ask me ask Google. I start joking about how I start telling people fake reasons as to why I do it. Like, and I, I, it gets more and more like extravagant and whatever. And the whole idea of that sketch is so that basically it's saying if someone, if, if I said to you, oh, why do you wear the hijab? And I was like, oh, because um, it adds 20 years onto my life. And you're like, really? I'm like, yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? You're going to go fucking go on Google. You're going to look it up. Reason why girls wear hijab. That's a vessel for you to open and actually be like, oh, let me read about this. Yeah, it's an indirect, an indirect way of, of calling out racism. I love it. Yeah. And that's kind of my aim with my comedy, an indirect way of calling out racism. Ola, I've I've absolutely loved talking to you about this. And it's, you know, I think it's been a, a great conversation. Oh, thanks, mate. And I think we'll leave it there. I think, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry I was a bit like the, because I had a long ass day at work and I was just like, didn't have my daily dose of coffee. But yeah, it was, it was really it. nice. I love like being able to talk about this and I love when people ask. So you basically have proven or ascertained what I want people to do. And that's to ask. Ola Labib, oh, what an amazing conversation that was. I really love the way that she's tackling racism, prejudice and stereotypes in her comedy in the most hilarious, wonderful way. If you want to find out more about Ola, then that information is in the show notes. And if you'd like to share your thoughts about this episode, then why not join our social networking site, which is social.starevents.online. Come and have a chat with us. Join me next week when I speak to American Roots singer-songwriter Grant Malloy-Smith. Take care, stay safe, and speak to you next week. <laughs>